Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, then you can find it on page 148. 148. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, looking at verses 9 through 14. Well, on this day in 1529, a year that none of you came in here thinking about, which I I'm sure will be ground into your minds now. No. Uh, in 1529, the world watched as two giants of the Reformation, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, came face to face with each other in a German, the German city of Marburg. Now, the, leading, the meeting actually lasted four days. It was organized by a man named Philip of Hesse, who hoped that in bringing these two men together, Protestants across Europe would be able to unite together against Catholic rule. Now Zwingli, if you don't know, was Swiss. Uh, he's sort of the, uh, the father of the reformed tradition that spread from Switzerland into southern Germany, France, Holland, England, Scotland, and other places. And through his in, though his influence really is overshadowed by work like men uh, like John Calvin and, and Martin Bucer, who kind of picked the mantle up after Zwingli was killed, after only two years really after his meeting with Luther, um, he's still kind of remembered as one of those big names in the in the Reformation. Now Luther, on the other hand, was German, uh, and he was so he was on his own turf when he was at Marburg. He had a long and fruitful ministry that changed the face of the nation he loved and spread wide as well. Now, for the most part, Luther and Zwingli found themselves in agreement with each other when they met. They're, they worked through 14 points of doctrine in those four days that they could agree with uh, with one another. But there was one point they simply could not resolve. And that had to do with whether or not the body of Christ was present in the elements of the Eucharist or at the Lord's Supper. For Luther, it came down to what Jesus said when Jesus instituted the Supper, saying, this is my body. As, they, as he began to, uh, to argue with Zwingli, that's all he could say back to Zwingli every time Zwingli would, would come with a counterpoint. Uh, just, this is my body. This is my body. Uh, Luther really held to a, a kind of a modified view of the Catholic understanding, saying that the elements did not become the body of Christ, but they were present with them and in them. Zwingli, on the other hand, had a, a different understanding. He understood that the elements signified the body and the blood of Christ, and they were distinct from it. So he argued for what Calvin developed out further to say, that to believe is to eat of Christ. So the result of that meeting was not what Philip of Hesse hoped for. Luther and Zwingli ended up departing from the city with Zwingli crying in tears about how he would have rather been joined to, the Luth to Luther and, his, and his, those who had come with him, and Luther initially refusing to acknowledge that Zwingli and his followers were Christians at all. Now, that seems to have changed over time, but it was a bit tragic. The tragedy of Marburg comes down to the point the way that these two great men became so divided with one another over an ordinance that Jesus gave to unite the church together. And as much as I love Luther on the issue, I, on this issue in particular, I, I think he took the wrong position. And Christ told his disciples to observe the supper together in remembrance of him. Not as a means of receiving forgiveness through an action, but as a means of acting in faith on what Christ has done for us. Remembrance is a key component to the worship that comes from true faith. 
In our passage this morning, Moses issues a call to the nation of Israel to remember what they had experienced together at Mount Sinai when the Lord came and communed with them in his holiness. Moses did this to help prepare Israel for the challenges that were ahead as they headed east, sorry, as they headed west um, to the to the nation, or to, 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 to cross the River Jordan and to enter the Promised Land. As Moses called Israel to trust in God, he reminds them that the promises they had received were grounded in the way that God had worked for them in the past. God does not call his people to trust him arbitrarily. So, like Israel, if we are to be obedient in faith, we too must hold fast in remembrance to all that he has done for us. And that's what we want to look at together in Deuteronomy 4, verses verses 9 through 14. So, if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word as we read together. This is the word of the Lord. Moses says, Only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the main idea of this passage really simply is this. Remember the Lord and all he has done. Remember the Lord and all he has done. In our time this morning, I want to show you why we're called to do this. Remembrance plays an important part in our walk with God. So I have three reasons we are called to remember, which we see in our text this morning. First, we see that remembrance increases our joy in God. Remembrance is meant to increase our joy in God. Second, remembrance fuels our obedience to God. It fuels obedience to God. And third, we will see that remembrance equips us to pass a heritage of faith on to others. It equips us to pass a heritage of faith on to others. Well, the first way we want to look at the duty of remembrance, why we need to remember, is because it increases our joy in God. The summer that Ellie and I first started dating, uh, we decided to take a trip from Louisville, where we were living, 
uh, to visit some of my college friends in Georgia. Now, I was really excited to get to see them again, and I was also excited to get to introduce Ellie uh, to the people and all the places that have been so instrumental in shaping my life. So when we got there, it was it was like old times for me. Uh, in the evenings, we'd sit there and we'd catch up, and we were sharing all the memories and laughs that we'd had together. I, I had a grand time. What I didn't realize is that really put Ellie in an awkward position because she wasn't there when we were forging all those memories. And it really kind of made her feel a bit like an outsider. All these places and names were new to her. And so while I got a lot of enjoyment out of reliving the past, she mm, didn't really. Uh, that trip really, in the end, became more about making new memories than it did about living out old ones. And now after seven to eight years of building experience and relationships with those same friends, we both have that same feeling of joy because we have that shared experience with one another. We're able to remember together. As we look at the detail of Moses' introduction to the law, which is what's going on here in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we hear him calling the nation to remember the word of God. That's what we, list, that's what we talked about last week, to listen to the word and to do it, to keep it and to guard it. But now we hear Moses calling the nation to remember not just the word of God, but also their experiences with God. In particular, Moses is here standing there reminding the people of their experience with God on Mount Horeb, which you probably know a little bit better as Mount Sinai. As we look at verse 9, it's abundantly clear that Moses understood that remembering what they had experienced with God was going to prove absolutely vital to Israel in its future as it sought to obey God and to live in the land that he was bringing them to. Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So as we look at this, what we see very clearly is that remembrance like this, remembering what God has done for you, is an issue of soul care. It is an issue of your own heart. This is something that the people of Israel could not afford to be without, and neither can we. You might forget to brush your teeth in the morning, but you cannot afford to miss this. As we look at verse 9, the thing that really sticks out to me is the energy and the emphasis that Moses puts on how important this really is to the state of our souls. This is something to put your back into. The reason for that is clear from the second part of this verse. Moses indicates that if we're not careful to maintain our memory of how we have experienced the power of God in our lives, there's a real risk that we may forget what God has done for us. And then if we forget, then we will forget not only what he's done, but also his word. If we're not intentional to remember the ways that God has acted on our behalf, we will most certainly find ourselves drifting in our devotion to him. These experiences with God are meant to be anchors for our souls and for our hearts, which guide us and guard us from being frightened off the path of obedience to the God who loves us and who is near to us. A forgetful heart is a wandering heart. If we're not careful to diligently guard our souls, if we allow the memories of all that God has done for us to fade from our minds, 
we will most certainly find ourselves searching for fulfillment in lesser things, lesser saviors that make great promises to us, which have the sense of security which our hearts crave but are unable to deliver. What eyes have seen, hearts are called to maintain. And as hearts maintain the experience of God in his power, they will be bound to him in joy and in peace. Now, last week, we heard Moses calling God's people to meditate on and to savor God's word. But what he says here shows us that we are also, to call, we are also called to meditate and to savor God's work. Remembering what God has done, reminding ourselves of all the ways we have experienced God's power, that's, that's part of finding our satisfaction and our joy in God, the way we were created and called to do. God is not just a God of the mind or of the intellect. He is the God of, of, of the mind and the heart and the soul and everything that we are. Just as He upholds the physical world, so He also calls us to know Him in His faithfulness. I, think, I really think that this is the difference between savoring God conceptually and savoring God personally. Just as we find joy in reliving those memories of the past with our family and with our friends, so we see here that we're meant to find a greater joy savoring the memory of all that God has done for us. Jesus tells us that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Which is to say that we are called to love God with everything that we are. This is the, it's the sort of love that sees God in his beauty and seeks its gladness in him. This is the mind that pursues God, the heart that is filled with God, and the soul that rests on God. It is impossible to serve the Lord as he calls us to do, to love him, as he calls us to do, without joy. Joy is both the natural fruit of true, authentic love, and it is the method of true, authentic love. And that's what makes remembering what God has done so vitally important for our walk with him. Remembrance keeps us satisfied in God. It equips us to worship Him with a right heart, to trust Him in every circumstance, to obey Him when He calls us to do things that we would never otherwise do. We have a duty to remember because we have a duty to delight. As Brad read for us in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Chronicles 16, sorry. David shows us the sort of joy which comes to God's people when we remember what he's done for us. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his miracles and judgments he has uttered. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Do you see how memory is connected to joy? Worship is connected to seeing God's work. 
in a world that is as chaotic and dark as ours, it is easy, I think, to drift into a depression over what is and over what might be. It is easy to give in to a pessimistic view of the world, to even begin to doubt the sure promises of God, to find ourselves debilitated in our obedience because we cannot imagine how this could possibly turn out for our good. And though we have passages like Romans 8, 28, which assure us that our God is in control and that He is indeed working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, it's this display of God's faithfulness in the past that actually really enables us to give ourselves to trust those promises that God makes for the future. I've been in many positions where I could not possibly see how something was going to turn out right. Where I thought it was, I had hit the bottom. I had bankrupt. There's no way this is going to work. I, I know that many of you have experienced those kinds of situations in your own life. I know that some of you may and are in those situations even now. In that case, brothers and sisters, my advice to you is to listen to the words of Moses which he spoke to the nation of Israel here, calling them to remember, calling us to dip our cup again into the ever-flowing fountain of joy that comes from Christ, to be refreshed again as we consider all the ways God has shown his faithfulness to his people in the past and has assured us for the present and has kept us for the future. If your heart is troubled this morning, If you're feeling down, the greatest thing you can do is to look again in the face of Christ, to be refreshed in the memory of the faithfulness of our great God who loved us and rescued us from a hopeless situation and did so in a way that would bring glory and honor to his name unlike anything we could ever imagine. When we are tempted to doubt God's promises, when we are faced with troubles on every side, the Bible calls us not just to trust in promises, but to look at the firm evidence of the love which God has for us. In Romans 8, 31, Paul asks, What shall we say to these things? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he points us to the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't keep your soul, if that doesn't fill you with joy, you haven't felt that yet. So, Refresh yourself by remembering. We remember, and through remembrance, our joy is made full because we know, based on fact, that God's promises are sure. They will never 
fail. And so we have a joy that does not disappoint, a hope that does not disappoint. Now, remembrance has another purpose. It also, we're called to remember so that we may obey. And that's our second point this morning. God's faithfulness is displayed each and every day from the way he provides for our most basic needs to the way that he has provided for us with salvation in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. From the bottom to the top, God proves his faithfulness on a daily basis. Moses could have spoken to the people of a general remembrance where they remembered each day all those blessings. But here, no, here he speaks to them about a specific instance, a time when they had actually met with God and experienced his power in a mighty way firsthand. In verse 10, Moses reminds the people how God had gathered the nation together to stand before him at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. Now this is where Israel received the law from God, where they became a nation that was covenanted with him, where they became covenanted with him as his people, and he became covenanted with them as their God. You can read about that uh, in, in a little bit more detail in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Now the first generation of the Israelites who came out of Egypt we know that they had, at this point, died in the wilderness. But Moses speaks to these people as they, if they had experienced this for their own. And indeed, I think that is the case, because while they would have been young at the time, they would have been present. They would have remembered this. This is the sort of thing that I don't think you could ever forget. And yet Moses is here reminding the people of this nation-defining moment because he knows what lays ahead is going to test them. He knows that this moment is going to be incredibly important for equipping the people to obey the Lord as they enter into new challenges in the promised land. Now, last week, we saw that Moses equipped the people, calling them to be faithful to God's word. Here, he's reminding them of that moment when they actually received that word from God, when they received the law. This was a moment that set Israel apart. As Moses said back in verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? Now, so when Moses says that to the people, they know what he's talking about. These men and women knew the truth of what Moses had to say because they had actually experienced the glory of God for themselves at the foot of this mountain. On that day, God called the people of the nation to come together to present themselves before him at Mount Horeb. In verse 10, Moses describes how the Lord told him, Gather the people together to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Now, as he describes, as he talks about how as the people came to the, near the mountain and stood there, that the mountain itself was on fire. It burned to the heart of heaven. That, it was wrapped, that that fire was also wrapped in darkness, in cloud, and in gloom. And then Moses says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, though you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. 
So why was it that God called the nation to come to him on the mountain, to come to the foot of the mountain? Well, he did it so that the nation, so that these people would become witnesses of the reality and the glory of the God who made them and who rescued them and who was making his covenant with them. Israel didn't have to imagine what the Shekinah glory of God looked like. They had seen the blazing of the fire of his holiness for themselves. They had witnessed the smoke that rose up from the mountain as if from a burning kiln. They had heard of the glory of God and now they were seeing the power of his work. Like Job when he says, I had heard of you, but now I have seen you. They came face to face with the reality of the perfection of the Lord on that day. It's, it's this moment like those villagers at the town in Samaria who told the woman from the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know indeed that this is the Savior of the world. This is the difference between being told about something and witnessing it. This was a monumental experience for the nation of Israel. It, think about if you had been in this company and had been called to the foot of a mountain that you had never really been around before, and you saw something of this grandeur and this magnitude, and then you heard the voice of the Lord speak out from the fire to you, you would have no doubts. This is a moment that was meant to define the nation of Israel, not, but not only just the ones who witnessed it, but also the children and their children's children, and all future generations. This was a moment where God made Israel a nation that knew him through experience. And the purpose of that was that in knowing him, they would become like him, living in this covenant obedience to him. God spoke to the people as he did so that they would obey him, so that they would live in the blessings of the covenant with him, walking in holiness, not being consumed by the curses he said would come upon them if they broke that covenant. God brought Israel to the foot of the mountain to fuel their faith and to fuel their obedience to him. He brought them to the foot of the mountain to equip them to walk in the way of life and in fellowship with him. So as we think about Moses and as he's reminding them, he could have reminded them of the plagues in Egypt. He could have reminded them about how God brought them through the Red Sea. He could have reminded them of any sort of thing, amazing, the manna, all sorts of different things. But he reminds them of this moment in particular. And I think it's pretty clear to see why. His greatest concern was to see Israel flourish in their relationship with God. And so besides reminding them to hold fast to God and his word, He's also instructing them to remember that moment when they experienced the reality of God's glory for themselves. They had seen the fire. They had heard the voice of God speak to them. They had received his commands and they had been taught by Moses, the servant of the Lord, all the statutes and all the rules they were to do in the land he was giving to them. I, as I read, I don't know about you, but I think that when what Israel experienced on this day at the foot of Mount Sinai would have been utterly terrifying. Okay? I mean, Moses, as he describes how this mountain was set ablaze with fire to the heart of heaven, how it was wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. 
I, it, it's, it's astonishing. In Exodus 19, Moses recounts how there was thunder and lightning and there was the blast of trumpets. The mountain itself, we are told, trembled as the Lord descended upon it. And then he spoke to the people and spoke his own words into their ears. How terrifying that would have been. In Exodus 20, we're actually told that the people who saw this and heard it, that they reacted the way I think we'd all react. They, they were terrified. And they trembled with fear. And so they begged Moses to speak to them instead of the Lord because they were literally afraid that they would all die. Israel got a true view of holiness that day. They got a view of why God is a God to be feared. They had come face to face with the awful splendor of God's holiness. And so it's easy enough to see why Moses would remind them to remember this day in particular. This was the day when they, not only did they receive God's commands and all the things they were called to do, but they also got to see the, the weight and the glory behind those commands. Moses reminds them of this so their heart and their hope would be set on the God who is and that their hearts would be inclined to do what he commanded them to do. Now, again, as I read about everything Israel experienced and was called to remember, besides the amazing wonder of what this would have been like, I'm also struck with the contrast that's here between light and darkness. The fire which blazed on the mountain where God made his presence dwell in a special way was shrouded with smoke and cloud and gloom. Eugene Merrill points out that these apparently contradictory elements communicate to us a certain self-disclosure and self-obscurity of God who is both simultaneously imminent, close, and transcendent above us. On the slopes of Mount Sinai, we learn that God is a God who is to be feared. We, we, we learn that he is holy, that he is not tame or safe, although he is good. As sinners, we'd sooner approach the blazing fire of the sun than the pure light of God's greater holiness. It was a mercy, actually, for God to shroud that fire in darkness and in cloud. Because that cloud protected the people, like that veil that hung in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, separating people from the holy of holies where God made his special presence dwell. God called Israel into a special relationship with himself at Mount Sinai. But there's always this separation between him and his people. The law he gave them in that moment was holy and good, but the reality is, is that the law could not make them holy as God was holy. That would take something else. Not the rule of the law, but the ministry of grace which we have received in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. This experience at Mount Sinai defined the nation of Israel and all future generations. God called them through Moses to remember it. But as we look to the New Testament, we find that this experience was ultimately anticipating something greater, a future hope and a future glory at the hill of Golgotha, where God himself took on the sins and the rebellions of his people and atoned for them by dying in their place on the cross. On that day, the veil that protected us from the fire of God's glory was torn in two. Why? Because it was no longer necessary. Because the death was sufficient. 
Salvation had been secured. It is secure. Atonement has been made. And all who trust in the Son are now declared themselves to be righteous and holy in God's sight. To be gathered in, not to the cloud, but to the fire. To bask in the presence of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see how Christ has elevated this ministry? Understand what Paul is saying there. In Christ we have received something better than these Israelites did. They received the law and a covenant with God, but they did not receive access into the throne room that we now may enter in clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. Those who are in Christ have have received forgiveness of sins and a righteousness that is impeccable. We don't earn that righteousness. And that's a good thing because time and time again we prove we cannot earn it. Only Christ can save us. Only Christ's work can make this so. And it is. He has accomplished that. And now having received this righteousness, this glory, we are called to remember and to obey Him as our King. Remembrance is key for obedience. It fuels obedience. Because we don't obey to try to earn that righteousness. We obey because that righteousness is ours. It is the fruit of his work in us. The Christian faith does not rely on hopes of what could be. It is grounded on the rock-solid reality of what is. It is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, and rule of King Jesus. What obedience does God require of us? To repent and to believe the gospel, Acts 2. That is our hope. That is our joy. That's what we stake our eternity on in obedience to the one who loved us and gave himself up for us so that in his death we might die to sin and in his life we might live to God. The third reason we need to remember is that remembrance equips us to pass this heritage on to others, this heritage of faith and hope. You'll notice that as Moses describes something to the nation, which, which they would have experienced and have seen, he also calls them to share that moment with those who hadn't experienced it for themselves. Part of the reason that Moses calls the people to remembrance is so that they can pass this heritage of faith on, this hope on, this obedience on, to their children and to all future generations. This is a theme that runs throughout 
the, all, the, all, all these verses. In verse 9, uh, Moses says, Not to forget the things that your eyes have seen. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So this is an ongoing thing. Then in verse 10, Moses recounts how when God first told him to gather the people together to speak to them, that his intent was for them to learn how to fear him and that they then would teach their children to do the same. The wonders which God has worked in the past, the things that he is doing in your own life, the things he's going to do in the future, they aren't just there for you. They aren't just for those who have witnessed or experienced those things. They are there to be passed on. They're a rich heritage of hope. God has laid an obligation on us to speak to others about the ways we have experienced the glory of Christ. In doing so, we're able to encourage each other to walk in obedience to Christ, to walk in the fear of the Lord. As we hear from others about what God is doing in their lives, we're able to rejoice in the power and in the grace of God as well. The light of the gospel isn't something that's supposed to be hidden away in the privacy of our homes and our hearts. It's intended to be set up like a lamp on a lamppost, giving light to all. How do we do that? Well, We do that first by opening our mouths and our lives to others to speak to them about how God has saved us. We're like mirrors who are built to shine the light of Christ by reflecting it into the lives of those around us. As parents, I I think Moses obviously orients this towards parents especially. Parents all want good things for their children. We want them to live. We want them to thrive. We want them to have good jobs and good families. We want them to live in safety and security. We may work hard to give them all sorts of experiences and opportunities. We try to live by example to show them the way in which to go. But what is all that effort if our children have everything this world can offer, but they do not have God? The greatest heritage you can give to your children is a heritage of faith. And while we cannot raise the hearts of our children or make them love Christ, we do have a duty to raise them in the fear and in the teaching of the Lord, daily exposing them to the glory of who He is through our words and through our actions. We're called to model that before them, to show them what it means to live in the grace of Christ, letting go of every other hope and clinging to him and him alone. Now, that's hard, okay? It's hard because our own sinfulness gets in the way and our own pride gets in the way. Don't be afraid to admit to your children when you are wrong. They already know that you're a sinner. They, what they need to know is that they're a sinner too and that there's grace for them at the foot of the cross which is able to make them pure. Besides our own families, let us all remember that we have been called to be witnesses and ambassadors of our risen King. Don't be afraid or ashamed to tell other people about what God is doing in your life. I met with a brother earlier this week who confessed to me some of the things that had had come up with some sin that had been confronted four years ago. And then we were both able to rejoice in the way that God had reconciled that and shown his grace and his glory in his life. And so this, this something that was shameful and wrong 
became a, a source of glory for Christ because we could see how he, and God had rescued him from that and restored him and was continuing to work through that. that. That wouldn't happen if he didn't tell me that. And so we are called to confess our sins to each other for a reason. Not because we receive absol- we're not absolved from our sin because we confess that to someone else, but because we're able to give glory to the one who rescues us from that. We're, we're not our own. And living as a living sacrifice in praise to God sometimes hurts. <laughs> and yet it's great because God gets the glory in it. And we get glorified with God in that because His glory has become ours in Christ. Remember that you're part of the body of Christ and that you've been rescued and redeemed and given a purpose, a mission to live your life as a living sacrifice to Him. So God calls us to remember He calls us to remember his word, but also his work. Remembrance will keep us and it will equip us with the joy of God in every circumstance, good or bad. It will enable and motivate us by the grace of God to obey our loving Lord. And it equips us with a heritage of faith that we get to share with others. So brothers and sisters, let us, by the grace of God, do that. Let us remember. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have this great heritage of faith. Father, you say in your word that all the things that have happened have been written down before us, have been written down for our instruction. And so, Father, we thank you that we're able to rejoice in that this morning as we hear Moses' words that he spoke to the congregation of Israel as they were entering in the promised land, reminding them to cling to the ways that you had shown your power to them in the past and telling them to cling to that so that they would fuel their obedience and their joy and their direction in which you had pointed them. And Father, as we've heard these words, I pray that you would speak them into our own hearts, that your spirit would apply them, that you would unearth things in ways that we are not being obedient in this, that we would confess those things, repent of those things, and follow follow Christ, remembering and relying on his grace. Father, also as we come to take the Lord's Supper, and as we remember that Christ called us to remember, I pray that we would remember rightly and that we would rejoice in the salvation that is ours in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.